clothes make the man. This adage uh, has been professed in some manner for eons. A more primeval form is from ancient Greece, where it says, the man is his clothing. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself that, no, no, I've heard this quote and it's attributed to Mark Twain. And he certainly has his own modernized and humorous version, which states, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> now, in Catholic circles from the year 1500, Erasmus, priest and theologian, said it in this way and in Latin, vestis virum fascit, which means clothes make the man. From whatever age you take it from, it seems that since people have started covering their nakedness with clothes, we have seen them as a sign of status, influence, and power. Certain colors used to identify people with wealth, since only the wealthy could afford the opulence of color instead of monotone drab. Purple was so valued that only the extremely wealthy and royalty could even afford it or were even allowed to wear it. To wear purple back then and to not be royalty would be akin to our version of stolen valor. Back before we could mass produce clothing in any color, the only place purple dye could be obtained was from a small region in the Mediterranean. In fact, the source of the dye was from mucus produced by a predatory snail, sea snail, found in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, these sea snails had to be harvested first out of the sea, and according to the Roman author Pliny the Elder, thousands of snails were needed to produce just one ounce of dye. Now, Cleopatra was said to be so wealthy and wanted everyone to know about it that she had purple sails for her pleasure barge on the Nile. Now, a tiny square of fabric was so highly sought after in the ancient world, and she had massive boat sails worth of it. Now, recently in the United States, our Senate tried to relax the dress code for our senators, and it was not received well. From CNN.com, they say, the U.S. Senate has passed a resolution formalizing business attire as the proper dress code for the floor of the chamber by unanimous consent. From NPR, the Senate's move to relax its unofficial dress code has led to a surprising development, unofficial dress code. From Fox News, the new written rules include coat, tie, and slacks for men. The resolution does not detail dress code for women. Now, I am not making a political statement, but rather saying that the idea from all sides of the aisle seems to be this, that our elected officials should be held to a standard of dress. Some argue it doesn't matter what we wear if we are able to do the job. However, as I said in the beginning, the idea that clothes make the man is nothing new. It's generally accepted that we are to dress for the job we want or for the stature our job holds. Now, jump to the end of the gospel with me. It says, but when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man not dressed in a wedding garment. The king said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, bind his hand and hands and his feet and cast them into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. So even in our scriptures, we see that clothes make the man. So now ask yourself, 
Does this mean that Jesus really cares about our fashion? Well, yes, and also no. We should always come to Sunday Mass in our very best clothes, for no other reason than to remind ourselves that in this time and at this place that we spend one hour a week, this is different from any other place that we will go throughout the entire week. However, this gospel story about the unfit wedding garment on the wedding guest is an allegory for the plan of salvation history, not a fashion plan to follow. The last line of the gospel is the one that puts it into context for us. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, we have heard that this great king has invited the chosen people to his banquet, and they reject his invitation. But be clear of this meaning. We see God as the king in the story. The chosen people are the first people God chose to reveal himself to in salvation history, the Jewish people. However, they rejected Jesus when he came offering them an invitation to the eternal banquet of heaven. And so in the story, the wedding guest rejects the invitations. It's not just mere forgetfulness either. It says that they mistreat the servants who bring the invitation. So we see this as a rejection of the prophets who foretold the coming of Christ. So does this mean that God has no further use of the people of Israel? That couldn't be farther from the truth. They are still God's chosen people in that they were the race of people that God first chose to reveal himself to. But that does not mean that they are the ones with whom fullness of truth currently resides. I know that because we have the Eucharist. The Eucharist is Christ. Christ is the source of all truth, beauty, and goodness. And since we have the Eucharist, we have the fullness of truth as revealed by Jesus Christ himself. Be very clear that the Catholic Church loves the Jewish people, though. They are our big brothers in the faith. They are the ones who God used to write the entirety of the Old Testament in the Bible we use. They are the ones through whom Isaiah the prophet wrote the words that we hear from the first reading. He speaks of a mountain that has a banquet on top of it with the best food and the best wine. The best food we could ever consume is the Eucharist. The best wine we could ever drink is the Eucharist. In the end of the reading, the prophet Isaiah utters words that sound just like those of John the Baptist when he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, there he goes. The words of Isaiah are this, Behold, our God, to whom we look to be saved. And in the Mass, you hear the priest echoing both prophets when he tells the people to look at what he is doing by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. We can never dismiss the Jewish people as not important, for everything we do here in this Catholic Church is built upon the backs of Jewish tradition and ancient temple worship. Now, I am speaking about the historical people of Israel and the Jewish people interchangeably. The people of Israel is the name of the Jewish people as they have historically been known. The people of Israel now refers to that country in the Middle East which is filled with people who practice the Jewish faith. To me, it would seem illogical to speak about the people of Israel 
without addressing or even mentioning the problems we have seen in Israel, the country, this past week. Recently, the people of the state of Israel have been attacked. Clothes make the man, and those clothed men seem to constantly make war. We are not foreign to war in principle, however. We may not be familiar, though, with what the Catholic Church's stance on war is. So that's where we will spend the rest of our time during this homily. Maybe the Ukraine-Russia war caught you off guard. But with ever increasing in violence in the world, we need to know what our church teaches when it comes to conflict and war. In Catholic social teaching, there is something called the just war theory, in Latin, bellum justum. It is a doctrine of military ethics that aims to ensure that war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria, all of which must be met for a war to be considered just. It has been studied by military leaders, theologians, ethicists, and policymakers. Now, the criteria of the just war theory is split into two groups, jus ad bellum, meaning the right to go to war, and jus in bello, right conduct in war. Now, the first group of criteria concerns the mor morality of going to war, and the second group of criteria concerns the moral conduct within war. There have been calls for an inclusion of a third category called jus post bellum, dealing with the morality of post-war settlement and reconstruction. For if not done well, the conditions left in place after a war may serve to be the foundation of further conflict. The just war theory postulates the belief that war, while it is terrible, but less so with right conduct, is not always the worst option. Important responsibilities, undesirable outcomes, or preventable atrocities may justify war. Catholic theory of the just war began, uh, began around the time of St. Augustine in the third century. The just war theory, with some amendments, is still used by Catholics today as a guide to whether or not war can be justified. War may be necessary and right, even though it may not be good. In the case of a country that has been invaded by an occupying force, war may be the only way to restore justice. And that is what we have seen. One country attacked by another group, and the world is waiting to see what their response will be. And more importantly, asking, what should the response be? The just war doctrine of the Catholic faith is found in our catechism in paragraph 2309, and it lists four strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force. Now, I'm going to list what they are, and then I will tell you what it means. First, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain, meaning the attack must actually be grave in nature. It cannot just be a threat or a minor attack to justify an entire war response. Second, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective, meaning that peace talks in every way have failed. Third, there must be serious prospects of success if one goes to war. You have to be able to win the war before entering it. Now this comes from Luke 14, verse 31. What king marching into battle would not first sit down and decide whether with 10,000 troops 
he can successfully oppose another king advancing upon him with 20,000 troops. The fourth and final criteria is the use of arms must not produce evils and disordered graver, I'm sorry, disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. This means that we must fight with the idea of proportionality in mind. The response to an attack must not go above and beyond the level of the attack. Meaning if they use guns, you use guns. If they use guns, that doesn't justify using nukes. Proportionality is key. Now, I am not going to adjudicate any current conflict in, in the world by these measures. I am just letting you know what the Catholic Church says about war. Judgment is mine. <clears throat> Judgment is mine, says the Lord. But as Catholics, do not be confused that we are pacifists. This is not true at all. In fact, we are called to defend life, all life, not just babies, all life. Life that looks like us and that doesn't look like us. Life that is from our country and not from our country. We have an obligation to defend our own life and the lives of those who cannot defend themselves. The teaching from the Catechism may be summarized as follows. Defense of life and the person. Everyone has the right to defend his life against the attacks of an unjust aggressor. For this end, he may employ whatever force is necessary and even take the life of an unjust assailant. So while we always strive for peace and we must make every effort to avoid conflict on the personal and national level, if we or our nation is subject to an unjust attack, we have the right and the obligation to defend ourselves and the lives of those who cannot defend themselves. This is at the heart of the right to life. Bishop Nestout, with all his brother bishops and the Holy Father, have condemned the atrocities seen recently in the Gaza Strip. As Catholics, we hold dear the sanctity of all life. The Church, in her wisdom, has constantly taught that violence and bloodshed should never be the path we choose. We, like Christ, are called to be peacemakers. However, let us remember that virtue is not synonymous with powerlessness. True virtue, true peacemaking, is the delicate balance of possessing the capacity for great violence, yet choosing the path of peace whenever it is attainable. We pray constantly for the members of our parish who are in the armed forces, and we pray for their safe return from all harm. So I ask the question, what are we to do when we just see so much war and conflict in our world? What do we do when our anxiety is raised because we don't know what the future holds? We do what we always do. We pray. We pray to the, I'm sorry, we are to pray for the peace of the world. We are to, in the words of scripture, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerus Jerusalem in Hebrew means city of peace. If our hearts are breaking for what's happening in the Middle East, then we should pray the Psalms in solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters. We should pray for both sides, though, as Jesus taught us to always pray for our enemies. I will end in the words of Psalm 122. For the peace of Jerusalem, pray. May those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. 
For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I pray for your good.